Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. We have a fantastic guest for today, the inimitable Corey Doctorow. We're going to dig deep into copyright and how artists can take back control of their precious works. Corey is a prolific author, speaker, and activist, and we're delighted to have him with us today. More in a moment. Welcome to Bubble Trouble. We are back for part two of our conversation with Corey Doctorow, the author of Soon to Come Out, or Just Out, Choke Point Capitalism, talking about so many of our favorite subjects, the ins and outs of markets, technology, and the fate of creators and artists. We've been covering in part one, if you haven't heard it yet, issues like monopoly and monopsony, the failure of regulation or regulatory forbearance, as Corey said about it, um, and some of the deep and dark history of how we got to this place where we've allowed bigness to become celebrated in everything, in every corner of the economy. I want to throw it over to Will to pick up on some threads of this conversation and keep going with Corey because we have many other topics to dig into. We sure do. We sure do. So I just want to kind of take stock, like when you're binge-watching something on Netflix and it's like, here's your season recap before you go into the next episode. What you were saying in our first show was basically you perhaps don't have such a big problem with monopoly power. You have a much bigger problem with monopsony power. It's what's happening in the value chain that matters, not so much what's happening with the consumer. But you also stressed it does go full circle. There's endogeneity, to use the technical term, in all of this. Then I kind of fall on two sides here. One, I go back to that book example. I'm a first-time author. You're an established author. Like I said in the last show, a million new frontless books are going to get to market, and they do get to market, and they are discoverable on the Amazon website. I'm not sure a million frontless books would have got to market had it not been for the size, the presence, the scale of Amazon. I just don't think that might have happened. So I see the benefits of scale. I see the benefits of scale in terms of choice, in terms of cost, and in terms of convenience. And what I wanted to quickly describe for the people in the studio here, and it's great to be in real life in a studio for the first time, by the way, in possibly the best podcast studio on the planet, but is to describe for our audience Hotling's Lemmer, which involves us going to the beach. So let me just go off on a little bit of a tangent here and see where we end up. Let's imagine we have a beach, and this beach is two miles long, 
and there is one monopolist ice cream seller on that beach. And that monopolist ice cream seller on that beach is half a mile from the north end, therefore one and a half miles from the south end. And people on that beach are evenly distributed. This is crucial. Evenly distributed because we all want our fair square share of sand. Now I deregulate the market and a second ice cream stall comes in. Where's the logical place for that second ice cream stall to go if the first one is half a mile from the north end and one and a half miles from the south end of the beach? Well, I think you're supposed to say half a mile from the south end of the beach. Boom. But what people inevitably do is stick it next to the one that's got the long line in front of it. With a little bit of zigzagging. So it will go half a mile from the south end, but in a bit to steal some of the north end's customers. Who says, I'm going to come in a bit to steal some back of those south end customers. And I'll come in a bit, and I'll come in a bit. And when you do look at commerce on a beach, the two ice cream stalls typically are located side by side, bang in the middle. Meaning there's a lot of people on the edge of that beach who are getting poorly served by the market forum. I think where... I really find alignment with what you're saying is when we look at markets, we need to look at that beach and say, why are those ice cream stalls together when they should be further apart? Mm -hmm. Who's serving the customers on the edge? And, you know, I think in a very contemporary way, why are the uh, CEOs of Unilever and Procter & Gamble telling us that the reason everything in our grocery store costs more is because of oil shocks and telling their shareholders that they found a bunch of suckers who will pay more because they think that oil shocks are happening. That, I think, is another example of this kind of wherever men of commerce gather alone, they immediately conspire to rig the game. But I have to ask, what is so disturbing right now, watching, for example, from afar and having three passports, one of them still a U.S. one, but what's happened in the political sphere is exactly the opposite. You've had increasingly large groups crowd at the extreme northern or southerly end of that beach. And there feels like there's nothing in the middle. Some of what you're saying, I feel like we need just a few alternatives. We don't need a thousand flowers to bloom in terms of other places to go buy books or hear music. Mm -hmm. We just need to break the strangleholds of the one that has, the, and this is something else I want to get into, that has that default position. And I guess, can you reflect a little bit on this power of defaults, the idea that, well, we're all creatures of habit. Hmm. Once we've gotten used to ordering from Amazon, we just keep doing it. And they've marked out a position which makes it very difficult to overcome the default, the habit-forming behavior. It makes it very difficult to unseat them from that position on the beach. And the guy who comes next to them to compete they will, won't have a fraction of the supply that they do. So I think this is an area where it's useful to, to actually be a bit of a tech exceptionalist. There's lots of ways in which I'm not a tech exceptionalist. I don't think the people who run tech companies are evil geniuses. I don't think that they're particularly genius, but I also don't think they're particularly evil. I think that they're just doing what any ordinary mediocrity would do if they just didn't have anyone around to tell them they couldn't. But there are ways in which tech is distinctive from other markets. And the big one is that we only know how to make one kind of computer. It's the general purpose computer that can run all the software we know how to write. And that means that intrinsically, you can always plug new things into existing things, and you can erode default status. You can lower switching costs. You can make it really easy to go from one thing to another. Mm-hmm. That's just built in. You know, you, you may remember around 2000, I was a CIO back then. I was helping SMEs keep their new intranets together. 
And we had a real problem with Macs on these mostly Windows networks, which is that Microsoft Office for the Mac was the single most cursed piece of software Microsoft had ever released. You just had to wave the install disk near a computer and all the files and it would go corrupt. And if you sent the designer or the CEO or the two people who could demand a Mac a Word file, if they could open it, if they sent it back to you, it was corrupted forever. And so we eventually started putting a PC on the desk next to the Mac. That was unwieldy. So then we just put a big graphics card in that PC. We threw away the Mac and we just gave them a graphic design station that ran Windows. Apple knew that this was an existential risk. They didn't go on bent knee to Bill Gates and say, please fix your intentionally broken Microsoft Office for the Mac. They had some engineers reverse engineer Microsoft Office, and they made Keynote, Numbers, and Pages, the iWork suite, which reads and writes all the Microsoft Office files. Suddenly, the switching cost was the cost of a new computer. All your files would come with you, and you could exchange files with anyone else in the world, whether they were running Windows or Mac OS. That saved Apple's bacon. You may remember they ran this ad campaign, the Switch campaign, Mm -hmm. which was just about how easy it was to switch from Windows to a Mac these days. So that's possible. We could hypothetically do something like form a a nonprofit association of local merchants that standardized all the SKUs on the shelves of all the shops within a couple of miles of you on the ASIN numbers that Amazon uses for its own stock tracking. And then we could give you a browser plugin that whenever you landed on a page on Amazon, it would say, well, this is also available around the corner. Would you like to buy it there? One click. Right. If you tried to do that, Amazon would reduce you again to radioactive rubble. They would say that when they did things like this to other merchants, you know, when Amazon started, their order sizes weren't large enough to command books on demand from distributors. And so they probed the distributor's stock inventory, found books that were out of print. And they would order one copy of the book they wanted and then 10 copies of a book they knew couldn't be delivered. And they would make the minimum order. And then they would just get that one book because the other... They gamed the system. Yeah. So if you tried to do that to Amazon, every pirate dreams of being an admiral, right? They would say, when we did it, that was legitimate. When you're doing it, it's felony contempt of business model. And you shouldn't be allowed to. And it would be a felony. They would invoke the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which criminalizes violations of terms of service. They would say by reverse engineering their app that you were violating Section 12.1 of the Digital Millennium. Copyright Act that makes it illegal to remove DRM here in in countries that are subject to EU law, which this one is for who knows how much longer. That would be Article 6 of the European Copyright Directive, same thing. They would say that you were engaged in tortious interference with their with their customer relationships. They would just basically say, when we did it, that was legitimate. When you do it, that's crime. Right. Just, just very quickly there, we, we, switching costs is a fascinating concept for me because it goes either way. And I remember listening to a presentation by Ofcom, our national regulator, mm-hmm. who Adam Singer reminds me is forever trying to regulate companies that are desperately trying to put themselves out of business because <laughs> <laughs> they don't regulate tech. They rate old media, not new media. But yeah, they were boasting about how the level of switching amongst ISPs, telco providers in this country, had gone up. So I raised my hand, the dumb kid in the classroom, and said, why are you celebrating that? Because more people are switching, that's a good thing. Well, it could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing because these ISPs are performing so badly. More and more people are irritable and need to leave. And the hassle of leaving is such a burden. It can take six months to get off Virgin Media. And I can't wait to get off Virgin Media. That's actually a net negative for regulation. So you can view it both Hmm. ways, which is if lots of people are switching good, we're exercising our right to switch. We had the billboard campaigns called You Switch, Mm -hmm. You Switch, telling people you've got the right to exercise your competition. But then if the markets are performing the right way and these ISPs are performing a great service and we're happy with the bills that we're playing, 
then I don't want the hassle of having yeah, to but, switch. But if they're doing a good job, they don't need the they don't need the barriers, right? right. They, but this is like the Berlin right. Wall that was the Berlin Wall that wasn't there to keep the people of East Germany in. It was there to keep all the jealous people out of the workers' paradise, right? You don't need a wall around the business that keeps people from leaving if you're doing a good job. And but contrary-wise, you can think about an equilibrium where the more it costs you to leave a firm, the worse the firm can treat you. Yes. Before you go. And well, you see this in, yeah. Well, or in the Texas AG's antitrust case against Facebook, these memos being published through Discovery that our top executives at Facebook sending memos to their bosses saying, we're going to make Facebook photos as good as possible. We're going to get people to put their family photos in it, not because we want to provide a better service, but because we want them to have to give up their family photos if they betray us and join Google+. Right, we want to increase the switching costs. Yeah, interesting. Now, just to wrap that one up, because I want to come in at a different angle here. This is fascinating. This is genuinely, I, I, for our listeners, I am jet lagged like a mofo right now. Mm. I've been, I didn't <laughs> sleep on the flight, but I am wide awake. Yeah. So, so collecting societies where I used to work at the PRS when I first started in London in two thousand six, the PRS was under investigation by DG Competition, our Brussels regulator. And the reason why is because he found an email where a songwriter who was a member of Gamer, the Gamer, sounds like a horror story and working with him it is, wanted to move from Gamer to the PRS. And they said to Gamer, I would like to transfer my membership to the PRS. I'm moving home. My family's there. I'm an English speaker. It's going to be easier to follow the contracts. Gamer then wrote to PRS saying, will you take this songwriter? Question mark. And it's the question mm-hmm. mark, which is if they say no, that songwriter couldn't move. And it's a perfect example of interoperability. It made mm-hmm. perfectly good sense for that songwriter to, to jump from a German language collecting society to an English language one. But the monopolists, the, the national monopolists, and they are national monopolies, controlled the decision to switch. Well, this, so this is an area we get into in the book. And I want to plug the book a little here in as much <laughs> as saying that the second half of the book is a bunch of technical solutions so to this. They're really, nice. yeah, and they're not... It's not just pointing at problems. Yeah. Just, let's get somewhere with or, this. And then saying, okay, everybody, go vote harder. We'll fix this, right? <laughs> we wanted to actually explain what you could do if you had the reins of power because a weird thing about the rigged arts markets is there have been lots of interventions, really substantial ones. The 2019 Digital Single Markets Directive, which is like this dog's breakfast of great things and really terrible things and things. Christmas tree bill where everyone puts something on it. Yeah, and like there was a lot of political will. Many artists don't have the power to make changes, but you know, when Paul McCartney and Debbie Harry back a bill, it, it does very well, which is what happened in this case. It's provisions, some of them, which were enacted in the name of helping artists, were not very good. And they really fulfilled what Bruce Schneier in Security Land calls the security syllogism, which goes, something must be done. Oh, there, I've done something, right? It doesn't matter if what you've done has any nexus with solving the thing that you're angry about. And so we wanted things that would solve these problems. And one of the things that we talk about is the extraordinary complexity of collecting society licensing, that each one of these collecting societies all over the world maintains separate non-interoperable databases, that there aren't common identifiers. They often claim that they are unable to locate obscure artists like Beyonce. And there are ways that we could fix this. We could create interoperable standards across borders. There are also ways we can fix the incentives. Like we could tell collecting societies, if you can't find an artist the only thing you can do with the money that you are not giving to the artist that you have no attributable royalty holder for is improve your system for finding No artists. taxation without representation. Yes, you can't. It didn't work well for Britain in America. Salary. It doesn't work well today. Exactly. And, and, I really, I'm so hungry to get okay. into this topic. Okay. Give, me, give me some runway here. In my book, <laughs> I come up with this concept called the strategy tax. 
Mm-hmm. And this was made by an observation. Remember, I'm a pandemic first-time author. I had to finish that book in sure. the darkest days of lockdown. But I always spotted this observation with Google Calendars. Gmail user, like many of the listeners, they made it easier to use Zoom than they did to make it use Google Hangout. Mm-hmm. And a huge chunk of the population was for the first time having to adapt to mm-hmm. video conferencing. But they made the decision to prioritize a competitor product mm-hmm. over their own. And I call that the strategy text. The thinking being, if it serves the overarching goal of the firm, you would cancel out competition for one of its components. That is, what matters more to me, making calendar work or making video conferencing work? I want to make calendars work because mm-hmm. I'm competing with Apple, another one of the tech monopolies. I'm competing with Amazon, another one of the tech, to make calendar the most attractive calendar feature there is. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to beat up on Google Hangout to prioritize a competitor, which is Zoom. That now, may be so. I mean, I think the thing I wonder about is to what extent is this just the curse of bigness? Yeah. Like you have someone whose KPI and bonuses are structured based on calendar uptake. And so they're like, OK, well, if we make calendar better for Zoom users because that's what everyone's using and no one uses Google Meet, then we will – then my KPIs will improve and I will get a bigger bonus this year, even if structurally the business would be better off if they were self-preferencing, which, again, as an anti-monopolist, I would yeah. prefer them not to do. Right. But self-preferencing is one thing. But they actually went to the other extreme to say, go competition. Right. And they made the decision far faster than any regulator could. That would have taken 18 months in the courts to action prioritize Zoom over Google because you're too well, they, is they Do you have a theory by which you can say, well, reliably firms will prefer competition if the market is structured in thus and so a way? Or... So it's, it's a theory in process. But if your job as a tech monopolist or just a large tech firm wanting to get larger – is to expand output, reduce cost, and importantly, compete for convenience, because that's how you scale, then the strategy tax is an interesting concept to play around with. There are many examples where tech companies will beat up part of their own business to achieve a higher goal in a bigger business. And that's something that regulation couldn't achieve, but but the market But Google, in the end, just integrated Google Meet, where now you literally can't create a Google Calendar event without a Google Meet showing up in it. It may have been that they didn't have the API ready, but I want to go back to... the way Google or a firm like Google behaves. So for the longest time, I looked at the Google network business, the placing ads on third-party websites. Sure. And I said, the traffic acquisition cost, the $20 billion they remit to publishers, kind of omerta code of silence money for those publishers who have willy-nilly said, we are going to outsource the placement of ads on our sites mm-hmm. to this third-party Google. The bigger question is, and I've I listened carefully and I love the concept of adversarial interoperability and we all have these ideas that we could have all this wide variety of services we engage with, but how much is this current state of choke point capitalism, the abrogation of responsibility by publishers who've been hmm. divided and conquered, by users who've been lazy and just went with the defaults? And even when those defaults were not as good, hmm. we said, you know what? It kind of works okay. If the calendar function on Google had just defaulted to Hangouts, you probably would have said, well, it's just easy to use. I'm just going to use it. And so uh, how Hmm. can you mobilize a sufficient portion of the population to say, well, we'd like alternatives, not just the folks like us who really want, who live and breathe it and understand mm -hmm. that there are alternatives. Mm -hmm. Just very quickly, just in defense of Google here, 
if you go to your settings, you choose your defaults. Yeah. The mm-hmm. question is, how many customers but can they've be been, to go they've to been settings? required by regulators to I, put I think that you're in. overstating it. I mean, there there was a scandal last year when the person who was in charge of Google location privacy said, I have unticked 12 boxes that are supposed to turn off Google location tracking, and I missed a 13th one, and I'm in charge of this program. That was another thing that came out in a yeah. privacy mm-hmm. lawsuit. So the, there there is such a thing as configuration theater. Right, where you tick the box that you think is doing one thing and it's not doing it. Google's privacy settings are notorious for this, right? Yes, and all of the big tech companies have seven to 12,000 words of privacy policy sure. that are supposed By to be... By being dumb enough to use the service, you agree that we're allowed to come over to you and punch your grandmother, right. wear I, your I, underwear, I, make I, long I very simply call it the data donation agreement. You yeah. sign the data donation agreement. Well, and no one's ever read them. You know, it's funny with Twitter and chaos now. I was around when Twitter was started, and a dirty secret that very few people know is that for the first two months of Twitter's existence, its privacy policy throughout referenced Flickr. Because they just copied and pasted it, and no one. Had... So <laughs> how do you mobilize? How do you mobilize enough people to say sure. yes? Where we just can't. These are very powerful brands. The, mm-hmm. the Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple are among the top ten brands in the mm-hmm. world, and that's including China and including places where they don't right. uh, uh, play. Well, right. Apple does, but the others right. don't. How do you get people to? So, but you asked two questions. Okay. I want to ask the answer the first one first, which is the one about the news media and yeah. whether they were lazy, whether they abrogated their responsibility. So let's remember that there are two things that happen. It's possible for everyone to be wrong in this situation, by the way. So first of all, news has historically been incredibly resilient, right? If you think about the news media, it weathered the telegraph, the radio, the TV, cable television, satellite, and it did it in part because mostly news media was were family businesses. They had substantial cash reserves that they kept that could carry them through technological transitions. And they own their they own their presses, they own their delivery networks, they own their sales force. It was a huge piece of the mm-hmm. strategic advantage of especially local news mm-hmm. was that you had a local sales force that literally just did shoe leather sales calls to the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker to place ads in the paper. So in the run-up to the big bang of tech. Something else happened to news media, which was the deregulation of news media ownership. Yeah, in and the that, U.S. In the, the U.S. Mark and, Fowler at the FCC. Yeah, huge consolidation, and that consolidation cross ownership. Yeah, and it found efficiencies by mass redundancies of the sales departments, which were then consolidated into boiler rooms in the Midwest, where they had no local expertise. Sell-offs of the physical plant and leasing it back, which exposed them to rent shocks. Outsourcing of their delivery systems. Mm-hmm. Right, all of the stuff that was kind of stabilizer in the event of destabilizing shocks, they got rid of, right? They pulled out all the Jenga blocks. Right. And then someone came along and knocked down the tower. So you have Craigslist, which just delivered better classified ads. Right. Now, And also the, the idea that, I mean, when I first came to London, I found my flat by looking at a free paper called Loot. Right. And it came out every week and it had sure. lots of classified ads in it. And that classifieds was a absolute money spinner for the newspapers. And then all of a sudden you realized half those ads you rang up while someone already took the flat or someone had already bought that bike. And if you could keep them up to date electronically, much like the French did with the Minitel in their phone books, then it would work a lot better. I had lunch yesterday with my colleague and collaborator, Charlie Strauss in Edinburgh, who cut his teeth writing for Computer Shopper. Same thing. Right. Right. So the uh, news media is now, it's in a brittle and unresilient state, you get Craigslist, right? And then you get much more rapacious firms that enter the ad market, not just Craig's a kind of a good-natured 
guy who just wanted everyone to get along and wanted it to be easier for people to find stuff. But you get these firms that were much more aggressive that enter the market. And these firms, among the ways that they're aggressive is in their acquisition strategies. So you think about Google as a company. We tend to think of them as like an idea factory. Look at all the cool products they've made. They bought a lot of companies. In truth, yeah, Google has made in-house a great browser or a great search engine. A browser that is good but also does not act as your honest broker on the web, a pretty good Hotmail clone, everything else, their whole ad tech stack, ad tech stack their whole display business, YouTube, their whole their mobile acquired, stack, acquired, acquired. server yeah, uh, management, see, uh, I, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, companies it, that they started to do it in-house failed. Yeah, and but I would argue that for a lot of the tech companies, they bought the ideas and then they have poured – Sure. Capital into them. And Kubernetes and Hadoop and all of these right. cloud, they were all invented by Google f- to manage their own infrastructure. Sure. So we were, but we, no, well, they bought the companies that invented and then yeah, they improved yes, them. Yeah, yeah. But we were talking before about, about Rockefeller and Standard yeah. Oil. So Ida Tarbell wrote yeah. the history of the Standard Oil Company, amazing muckraking journalist. She was yeah. the first woman to get a science degree in America. She was just a self-taught yeah. journalist, daughter of a Pennsylvania oil man who'd been ruined by Rockefeller, who made it her mission to, to untangle his empire. And in the last chapter of the book, she's got a thing she describes called illegitimate greatness. She says, John D. Rockefeller is good at a lot of things, right? Of course, he is good at managing a rail network and integrating a rail network with an oil network and running pipelines. Of course, he has to be good at that. That doesn't make him great, though, because what he uses that dominance to do is to also be really great at hiring thugs with railway ties to beat the brains out of anyone who tries to compete with them. And he also was really great at getting that one Ohio senator who was going to regulate him to take a job at a Rockefeller business in San Francisco, Mm. quit his job as a lifelong politician, move to the West Coast and disappear from the scene forever. And so the fact that Google is like good at running HR for a business all around the world, owning a lot of real estate, having operations management, managing tech teams, those are table stakes for being a big business. In fact, all we're saying when we say they are good at doing that is that they are a big business, right? That is what it means to be a yeah. big business. They have 180,000 employees. Yeah. and But back to the simple point, which is, is was it the abrogation of responsibility so by the news going. media so, that said, you know what? We've actually said, yeah, sure, Google, right. <clears throat> let people come to our site via you. Sure. Sell they our were, I mean, they were they were taken over by private equity. They were gutted. They were reeling. The people who ran them didn't understand the business. But Google and Facebook merged to Monopoly, took over the whole display advertising business, the buy side, the sell side, and the market in between. Yep. And then, as we found out through the attorney general of Texas's lawsuit against them, They embarked on a program called Jedi Blue, where they rigged those markets and stole money from publishers. They stole money in lots of other ways. So Facebook's pivot to video, where they falsified data about how their users were interacting with content in order to get publishers to capitalize a YouTube competitor, right? They said like, oh, look, our users don't interact with text articles at all. They only watch videos. You should go make videos. Publishers all over the world got themselves way in over their head to make videos, having been told by Facebook a lie. And then many of them failed. Facebook thought this is how we can get someone else to foot the bill for us becoming a YouTube competitor. And so today we have this bizarre situation where the news media says Google and Facebook are stealing our content. And this is where I want to push back on your idea that they should have stopped Google from indexing them or stopped Google from linking to them or stopped Facebook from letting users describe them. It's not a copyright violation and it can't be 
to tell you what the headlines are in a newspaper, right? If you're not allowed to talk about the news, it's not the news anymore. It's a secret, right? <laughs> the problem with what how Google and Facebook interact with newspapers is not that they're stealing their headlines. It's that they're just stealing their money, right? And you know what? If you stop taking the headlines, which they keep doing whenever they have these news bargaining codes, the newspapers don't make any money. Yeah. Right. And Springer tried that in Europe. They said, we're not going to let Google index us. Sure. And they came back. And what was so <laughs> disappointing, and I'll just finish on this, and you describe it in your book, but in Australia, you had the regulator under the, at the behest of Rupert Murdoch mm-hmm. say, we've got to reset the relationship between the publishers and the tech platforms. And then at the 11th hour, Rupert Murdoch News Corp signs a deal with just Google. Just as a side It's deal. just really about the money. It's not about the principle. We'll be back in a moment to dig deeper into music copyright with two real heavyweights, Corey Doctorow and Will Page. I do want to squeeze in some questions on copyright before we go to smoke signals. Yep. Yeah, sure. And on this... I'm going to ask two. <clears throat> one about the problem and one to offer a potential solution, sure. which actually comes from this building right here too. Okay. So on the problem, I think it'd be fair to say that your views on copyright often get for me dumbed down in the media. Sure. Is copyleft? Is copyright? This person Abolition, blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And we, firstly, let's deal with intellectual property. There's trademarks, there's patents, there's copyright. Three completely different things. Especially Trade secrecy, <laughs> anti-circumvention, non-compete, Database rights. It's a big. It's a big weird chimera that we put under a single. Term. Yeah, but then people just want to brand it with one brush. But give us. If I say doctor, let's ask the doctor to give copyright a quick health check. Sure. What do you think are the sort of symptoms and cures of what's wrong with copyright today? So I think that if you're going to make copyright for the benefit of artists, you need to be able to articulate how it is that specific elements of copyright policy will benefit artists. It's mm-hmm. not enough to say copyright's good for artists axiomatically, therefore all copyright is always good for artists. So take, for example, extending the term of copyright. Extending the term of copyright um, produces a tax on new creators because new creators have to license other works in order to make new works. Anyone who claims that new works are made without referencing old works is either kidding you or kidding themselves. But It, it also creates remasters. Led Zeppelin remasters was not because it had to be remastered, it was because sure. it had to be kept in And when those terms are, when those long-lived copyrights are extracted by firms, it gives firms enormous control over the sector, which is bad for the artists whose copyrights they've appropriated and bad for the artists who come later. And we talked about the Spotify example. So in, in the United States in the 1976 Copyright Act, there was originally a proposal that all copyright transfers would terminate automatically after 25 years, unless the creator took an affirmative step to renew it. This is related to the first copyright in the United States, where copyrights assignments terminated after 14 years. This is expiring in the copyright, not the reversion of rights, but the expiring. No, 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 termination or transfer. Right, okay, so, so this is reversion. Yeah, yeah. I gave you, I, I signed a contract. The contract says I give you this copyright for the full length of copyright. Even so, after 25 years, I get it back. That got watered down to 35 years, and you have to fill in 11 miles of paperwork. Nevertheless, that has been really good for a bunch of artists who got a really bad deal in lots of different ways. So you have artists like the creator of the Sweet Valley High books and the creator of the Babysitter's Club books who've terminated all those transfers. And now if you buy those for a young person in your life, that money is going straight to them. They had very weak bargaining power when they started their careers. Now they've got stronger bargaining powers. Stephen King has done this with his first half dozen novels and so on. But the most interesting example, I think, from a music perspective is George Clinton 
whose unscrupulous manager forged his signature on a copyright transfer and then made George Clinton sue him for decades using the money that he got from having stolen George Clinton's copyrights to defend himself against George Clinton trying to get them back. And after decades of this, George Clinton said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just terminating the transfer. You say there's a transfer? There isn't a transfer anymore. We're done. And he got his rights back. So the, George goodness. Clinton is touring in his 70s, not just because he's an unstoppable funk machine. He's touring in his 70s because he's broke, right? Now he's got money again. That is one of the many ways that we could make this system better because we all know that creators uh, start their careers at a low ebb in terms of their negotiating power. Right. And then they get these high ebbs. And when they do, they can make a big difference for themselves, for other people. Yeah. And just a couple of points on that. One, a rights reversion, what all three labels have done, and I think this is partly accelerated by our inquiry here in the UK, is to have a debt jubilee. So if I signed Richard Kramer for a £400,000 advance in 2001, and he's only paid £200,000 back, I now wipe off the debt balance and he sees royalties. So there That's is right. progress there. Just one last one, and then smoke signals. We're here with Platoon, <laughs> set up by Denzel Fiegelson, a real mentor to me professionally and personally. And Platoon's vision was to change the agreement between the label and the artist. It's not even a label. It's a services company. So rather than I dangle a big check in front of you, acquire all your intellectual property for all of your life and 70 years after your death, and you recoup on a sliding scale, Platoon says, you retain your intellectual property and we service it. And we'll come to an arrangement about what the commission is for those services that you need. It's not all in, all out. It's pick and mix. But... It's a different way. You think about principal agent, it, it flips it on its head. It's not alone. Cobalt has also pioneered this model as well. Does that model give you hope that the contractual, not the copyright itself, but the contracts that link copyright between creator, indiv- individual and firm is actually moving forward? I mean, in, to a certain extent, we have a lot in this book about contractual reform because one of the things that is an element of contract law is this thing called the doctrine of unconscionability, mm-hmm. where certain clauses that we think about in these contracts that are the default, just shouldn't be enforceable. We talk about in the book that if you have a royalty arrangement and you have the right in your contract to audit the finances of the firm that that is supposed to pay you royalties, a game publisher, a music publisher, a label, a studio, a book publisher, typically when you find an error in your favor, and we cite a firm in Los Angeles that's done tens of thousands of record label audits, all of they the never errors they never come up short, found, right? They uh, never come up short. Well, they found one instance in which the artist got a little more than they owed. In all those other instances, the money went the other way. We can only assume that is because of some kind of weird localized probability storm. Mm. But the, the, the if you find that money, they're going to tell you, I think you're mistaken. You just don't understand finances. But I tell you what, if you will sign this non-disclosure agreement, we'll give you a discounted settlement, and your auditor has to agree not to audit us again. Someone else is going to have to do this. We talked about this with the Trash so Future this is podcast. like the small-town divorce lawyers. You just cancel out all the lawyers who could potentially do the job. That's right. Well, we talked to the Trash Future podcast about this, and Alice said, this is like the forensics team turning up in the murderer's house and them saying, oh, gentlemen, wherever you'd like to dig in my garden, that's fine. Just not in that corner. I'm very sentimental about it. <laughs> and so when you sign that non-disclosure, we spoke to a source who <clears throat> we couldn't name because they signed a non-disclosure, had a six-figure error in their favor that was discovered by their auditors. It means that you can't go to similarly situated people and say, I know where there's some money that was stolen from you and where to get it. Now, here's the thing. Contract is a creature of state law. State law is much easier to reform than national law or international agreements. And there are four states in which all of these contracts are consummated. New York and California, Seattle because of games and Amazon, and Nashville, Tennessee. If you were to introduce short bills in those states that said, as a matter of public policy, 
non-disclosure cannot be enforced where it pertains to material omissions or errors in royalty statements that were down to the detriment of creators who are owed royalties, then at the stroke of a pen, you would put more money into the pockets of more creators all over the world than 40 years worth of copyright term extension combined, right? That this is like, it's a because, crack in the... Because one clever auditor... Could find all who, the money that could, was stolen could, from all the who creators. Who could reverse engineer the algorithm... Yep. ...would be able to say, I've seen this movie before. Yep. I know how to do this. And I'll set up my shingle I'll in the middle of the beach. Or just harass. And, and speed run it. <laughs> so this is like a crack in the system. And you stick a crowbar and you wiggle around and money pours out of the system and into artists' pockets. And you ask, right. what's a good, how do you fix copyright? I think the problem is that when we confine our analysis of how we help artists to copyright, when all we have <clears> is this hammer and, and, and everything looks like a nail, when we don't talk about contractual limits, when we don't talk <laughs> about... Uh, market structure and competition. We don't talk about all these other things that are actually far more material to the economic fortunes of artists today than we're confined to tinkering in the margins mm. with things like hoping kind of magic underpants, no math, where we're like extend copyright by 40 years, something profit, right? Well, what's the thing in the middle whereby your copyright's extended by 40 years and that now the four publishers left in the world are going to give you more money for it? How does that work? Yeah. I want Just real quick, I mean, to Denzel's credit, when he set up Platoon, he always attacked the contracts that you're referring to here. A, a typical record label contract was 33 pages. The first three pages explained how you're going to get your money, and the next 30 pages told you why you're never going to see any of it. <laughs> His a vision of a contract set on one piece of A4 paper. Fantastic. Right. You own intellectual property. I service it. Let's right. go to work. Almost there was, like a VC fund. There was a great, there, there's a great bit in the book where we talk about the persistence of breakage royalty deductions into the digital era, breakage being the percentage of your royalties deducted for the shellac records that break in the back of the lorry on the way to the high street record store. And that's taken out of your MP3 royalties. And we say the GAAP basis for this is fuck you, that's why. You know about shipping platinum and receiving gold? No. So platinum's a million records in America, uh -huh. gold's half a million. Uh -huh. If you want to get certification, you've got to shift a million. If you want to get your bonus, you've got to shift a million. If you want to get promoted, you need to shift a million. Right. But shipments aren't sales. So what record labels will do is ship a million, yeah, yeah. qualify for their certification, get their bonus. Then if half a million came back to the Fetra Gate, that's someone else's problem. In the 70s on. and 80s, bookstores would get L. Ron Hubbard's science fiction novels the with, Dianetics. Their own, with their own price stickers already on them because Scientologists were coming and buying them all and then sending them back to the warehouse and then shipping them out again to get them out of the Times bestseller list. Let me wrap it up with a quote from my dear aunt Doreen Loder, who is my mentor in the music business. God bless her. Uh, she always described the music industry as so bent it straight. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, we want to get to the last section sure, that we always signals. do yep. of our podcast, Familiar which is with it. to do a little smoking yes. of the in-studio variety. I'm sure this August studio doesn't allow smoking in-house. And ask you for a couple of smoke signals, sure. things that when... You're doing interviews, especially ones with maybe some of the more officious business organs that will say, well, gee, Corey, talk to me about this choke point capital. What is it all? Mm -hmm. The kind of language that makes you go, uh-uh, no, that really isn't happening. The kind of things that set your hackles on end. The excuses for hmm. the behavior that you document in the book sure. that you feel, for example, the one we hear very often from tech bosses is it's a complicated issue. Right. I would say that anytime we, we hear that it's a matter of individual choice, 
right? That basically like the climate emergency is there because you aren't recycling diligently enough. The monopoly problem isn't is there because you aren't shopping well enough. But these structural problems don't have individual solutions. One of the things that happened when we were shopping this book around is we showed it to an editor who raved about it. But they said, uh, everything in the back half of the book, they're systemic answers. And it's going to bum out readers. They're going to want to know what they can do individually to solve this monopoly problem. And we were like, dude, you are so close to getting it. Oh, my God. <laughs> the penny just dropped. Yeah. And so I, I think that... You mean if I get a music subscription to every streaming service? You will I'll be a better human. Or better yet, right? If instead of going out and protesting Amazon, you spent four hours driving around looking for artisanal markers that come from a smallholder who makes them on the on their own while wearing a leather apron, and you don't even make it to the demonstration because you didn't want to order your markers from Amazon, then we know that Amazon is going to win. Right. It's like it, it, here in London, individuals all want to do their bit for recycling. Mm -hmm. Altruistic, get it. Do good attitude, get it. All commendable. But nobody asks a question about the systemic problem of recycling right. policy, which this city has 26 different recycling policies, mm -hmm. and none of them are aligned. The boroughs are all different. My and recycling is taken to Germany to be recycled. What's right. the transaction cost and resource cost of taking my recycling to Germany? And this is back to the point I was saying about have people been divided and conquered? Yeah. Well, I think that to the extent that we are told that the only way we can address these issues is as individuals. As individuals. All the nurses are going out on strike. Well, if they don't like it, they should have bargained harder individually for their contracts. <laughs> I think that... When you hear people say, well, if you didn't want to be in the thrall of Mark Zuckerberg, you shouldn't be using Facebook. I'm a Zucker vegan. I don't use Facebook. I'm, I'm, I don't know if WhatsApp. I don't have Facebook any. Shout out Patagonia. But, but I know lots of people who are. And the reason they're on Facebook is because the other people they love are there. And the reason those people are there is because they're on it. Mm -hmm. And they're engaged in a form of mutual hostage taking. And the reason that they are mutually hostage taking is because Mark Zuckerberg won't let anyone connect a new service to Facebook that would allow you to leave Facebook, go somewhere else. Yeah, and there's no portability. And I know you have to call of, of DMA. But I think the Digital Markets Act actually holds out the possibility of doing something about this. It does. I guess my longstanding concern is that the ability of bureaucrats or bureaucrats to, to, enforce it. to enforce it is limited. And I still revert back to the five reasons why, unfortunately, I think big tech isn't going to get broken up. Well, they get a lot of money if they can find big tech. And one of the things is that big tech cheats all the time. Yeah. So in some ways, it's kind of self-sustaining. They can just go levy a couple $5 billion, five billion euro fines Correct. and then use that to fund enforcement of the substantive parts of the regulation. And I also think that what's really interesting, I know you're at this thing in March in Brussels, but I was at a CMA thing last spring here mm -hmm. in London in yep. Canary Wharf that was very exciting. And it, part of the thing that was exciting about it is the international cooperation. Yep. Here in the UK, the greatest competition boondoggle there is that they created the Digital Markets Unit of the Competition Markets Authority. It's brilliant. It's 50 full-time engineers. They write the most incredible reports on the inner workings of these rigged markets. Mm -hmm. The secondary legislation to give them enforcement powers was never passed. Yep. So they just yep. make the reports. But you know who's got a lot of enforcement powers and no headcount? The European Commission. Yep. And they are taking these reports and running with them. Yep. And everybody's happy. Yes, we should have enforcement powers here. But even if we don't, it's not a, it's not going to stand in the way. Yeah. And I guess in another context, and I founded my company 22 years ago, seeing this, the and we saw this all through the global financial crisis. It is just a cost of doing business for the big banks that they pay fines mm -hmm. of fine $5 billion or $8 billion yeah. every few years. We had my friend Jesse Eisinger on the podcast talking about Chicken Shit Club and that mm -hmm. the prosecutors, they're never going to take the cases all the way. Well, uh, let's have another smoke signal. Something else. Get this. We're not able to 
as individuals change everything. It's hard in, in a world of agency. One more smoke signal. So it's the inverse. It's the corollary of that. So James Boyles, uh, another Scotsman, and Bird is law professor, runs the Duke Center for the Public Domain with Jennifer Jenkins. He talks about the term ecology. And he says that before the term ecology was coined, it was really hard to know that you're on the same side as other people. If you're fighting about owls and I'm fighting about the ozone layer, what do your charismatic nocturnal avians have to do with my concerns over the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere? But the term ecology turns all of these issues into a movement. Mm -hmm. And you are seeing an overarching thread of skepticism and alarm at corporate power and a sense that these are all connected. That the fact that there's three giant shippers who are in a cartel who can tell their yep. regulators to go it's screw all themselves. Over the place. And that when they say, stop making the ship so big, your economies of scale are great, but you're going to get stuck in the Suez Canal. And they're like, screw you. We know more about shipping than you do. That that is connected to Luxottica Essilor owning all the glasses brands and all the high street eyewear shops, which is connected to the web being turned into five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four, which is connected to there only being four major studios. And that yep. these are all the same issue. Yep. And that coalition, that idea, that ecology moment for pluralism and blunting corporate power and bringing it to heel, that is, I think, the beginning of the end for the last 40 years of neoliberalism. And that would be a fitting and fascinating topic for us to keep going off sure. in bubble trouble because we have been looking at the justification of these bignesses, of these we're going to change the world ideas, which are really just, for example, in the gig economy, labor arbitrage, and saying, well, hang on a second, that is a bubble just ripe to be popped. And mm -hmm. hopefully more and more people will take that skeptical view and look to pop them. Well, I've just turned in a book to Verso about about interoperability called The Internet Con Sees the Means of Computation. So maybe when that comes out, I'll come back in and we'll talk Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. And can I thank Will for the fantastic deep dive on copyright and a huge thanks to Cory Doctorow, the incredibly eloquent, thoughtful polymath. Uh, Let me also mention before we go, yep. my co-author on this book, okay. the lead author on this book is the wonderful Rebecca Giblin, brilliant law professor, activist, publisher. She's got 150 books that she's brought back into print that were the core of Australian literary wow. heritage that she got the rights for, brought them back as e-books, brought them back as print Practice books. what you preach. Amazing. So, and, yeah. and we'd love to have her on to talk about the, uh, the information zone that is in Australia with yeah. the media ownership and, uh, and that whole thing with the it's ACCC. A yep. It's a whole thing. Thank you very much, right, Corey, thanks, and that's been a fantastic Cheers. double parter of Bubble Trouble. Great. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nozum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. Special thanks this week to Oliver Blois and Elizabeth Arnold at Platoon 7 Studios in London for helping us record this episode. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, on behalf of my co-host, Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life 
and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. 